And I told them that it's about the, the value that you put in for your time. A lot of renovators never allow for their time in the projects. And so while they might be making money, you know, they might be earning like $5 an hour because the amount of hours that they put in into some of these projects is, is magnanimous. Welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest called Mike Day from Apex Development. And the topic that we're going to discuss today is how to become a developer with no money of your own. Now, in this part, we would be discussing about how did Mike change from the corporate side of things and transition into the world of real estate or world of property development? How important is research and education when it comes to setting up or defining your business models? And what roles do mentors play in this space? How important is the team selection and the legal requirements and understanding all the legalese around these? We talk or double over feed just into the number side of things. This is a two-part episode, so stay tuned till the very end to get the golden nuggets. Thank you for listening to us. Keep smiling, stay safe, keep investing. This is Moss checking out. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today is one of the very interesting podcast. It's very, very near and dear to my heart because this is an area of expertise that I don't bring in into my business and that is uh, an aspiration for my own self as well. And so I'll introduce my guest first and then we'll open up the conversation about all the luxury housing and the luxury developments and how does that world happen and we'll unpack a lot more detail into what does that world look like. Let me introduce my co-host, my guest today, Mike Day. Mike, how are you today? Hey, Moxon. Really well, mate. Uh, things are going very well for us here. Um, my name's Mike Day with Apex Developments. As you said, we, we, we tend to focus more on the, the high-end luxury space, and we, we've got a current project. Well, you know, I'd love to sort of walk you through a little bit later and uh, you know, direct you to a few different places. You can check some things out. The penthouse is currently up for sale right now and uh, construction's just finishing. So we just got our occupational certificate. I'm, I'm pretty excited right now. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll go into all of this, you know, fun stuff into a lot more detail. Let's take a step back, Mike, and talk us through about who Mike really is. Who is Mike? You know, who is Apex Development? And uh, how did this property journey came about? You know, it's, it's not just about luxury. You know, people don't start off usually in luxury. So Take us back into, you know, where you come from, what have you done in the past? And, you know, how does this passion of property basically start it? Yeah, well, I guess working backwards then from present, Apex Developments came to be when I acquired the, my, the current project that I'm looking at and, 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 and developing at the moment. And Apex really stands for the, the pinnacle and the peak of achievement. So and and that's really what my values are driving me towards and and it was always something me personally I've always really feared towards the the luxury and the the elegance of certain things and it always felt kind of almost wrong in some way to you know be be just doing just enough just to get it sold or you know you you want to go all the way with like the nicest stone the nicest hardwood whatever so and that that really pleases me and it makes it just it energizes me and gives me a lot of joy in what we do and I think that's extremely important that to inject that energy into the into your work so if you're doing things that you're not really pleased with you know or you're just doing it for money it's just never going to 
bring the same result because the energy you bring to that task will always have some sort of cloud or grayness to it that it's like, this isn't good enough. It's not really what I want to be doing. And I just love what I do. So so let's take a step back. Where does this... Where yeah, does yeah, this stepping backwards from? now in time. Yeah. You take us back into like your 20s and your 30s and, you know, or maybe yeah. your teens, right? You know, what is, how did that, you know, journey came about of, you know, you know, I ask my kid in today's time and, you know, you know, none of them say that, you know, they want to be a property developer, right? That is not an occupation, you know, kids put their hand up to heart too, right? No, like, no, exactly. Like if you, if you're talking, if I was talking to my, you know, 20, three-year-old self, man, I'd slap that kid silly, you know, like I, I must, uh, I, I spent a lot of money just out at the bars every night. You know, I'd enjoyed my twenties. I had a lot of fun, but man, I could have taken that probably 40 grand. I spent that year on booze and, and fun and, and, and girls and, and converted it into my first property and probably been, you know, a lot better off, uh, by the end of my twenties. But, uh, how did the transition happen? Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, obviously I went to, you know, university, took business, you know, it was boring. So I I started off, I got right out of uni and I and I started managing restaurants. So wow. I elevated myself to a management position with a staff of 80 people managing the profit and loss, you know, running a, you know, $4 million a year business, right? And wow. So you, 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 you learn a lot of skills there, managing people. And at that point, it was kind of more like a glorified babysitting job because, you know, hospitality tends to attract, you know, students and people, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, hosts, you know, those sort of things, cooks. So you're dealing with staff that are young and don't know where they're going and they're just trying to make their way and earn some money and you're, you're dealing with their their girlfriend or boyfriend problems and their school schedules. And it's, uh, it was quite a challenge. And it was sort of slave labor, like you work for big corporate, you know, restaurant chains and things like that. And like, you know, can you imagine working 80 hours a week for 60 grand a year? You know, like, it's, it's like, okay, no, that's the that's the interesting bit. So, you know, when you talk about you know, your work and, you know, you working as, you know, a, a, an elite manager managing restaurants. Ultimately, you know, what's the commonality between this and developments? You are making money for someone else, but in developments, you're making a lot more money for yourself as well together, rather than just the $60,000 that you're making for yourself. And you are, you know, ultimately making money well, for well, yourself. Well, absolutely. You know, you're, you're there driving, driving costs down, managing staff, and you're putting all this money in the, in the, in the pockets of huge corporations. And then, my one of my dreams as a kid though moxon was to be a firefighter and and all and 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 i i basically abandoned that dream i people told me i was wasn't big enough it'll be too long a wait and i was really like i just want to get out in the world and make money and i abandoned my dream and it's probably one of my only life's regrets you know and i've i've given some thought to going back to you know tr- trying out and going through the academy and but Probably it's like, and I'm almost 50, so. Can I say you're still putting out well, fires? Exactly, yeah, I'm still putting out fires and I'm still and I'm still helping people just in a different way. You know, I'm not rescuing them from a building, but I'm helping them to build their wealth. So there's still that, that, that genuine helping nature there, which, which is, which is part of my, my value system. So, yeah. but uh, following the restaurant side of things in management, I really got a taste for, you know, business. 
And, you know, university was a snore, a complete bore, like the, the technical side of things, like I just want to be in it. And from there, I, uh, and the, the reason I ended up in Australia is because I was so disillusioned with the restaurant side after I thought, you know, my goal was to be a bar owner and to, to have a big business and a staff. But after running a, a large chain restaurant for three years and watching staff break plates and throw cutlery out and wreck our building and it's like you just get a flavor to understand that people don't care about your business and it wasn't even mine right it's like so you need to be able to have a business where you can have people you want to work with and that care as much about the business as you do so so then i i got into large corporate you know setting in a fortune 500 company managing pr large capital projects like 50 million dollar portfolios and and the managing director uh of the Australian operations was amazing he he, he walked up, walked me through all the P&L how the business is managed so I could really see what my contributions and revenue was bringing in and where that money was going and how it was utilized and the value that it brought so again that really showed me from a management side of things, from a, a, a project management side of things, how like how my processes are helping drive business and grow business. And so again, it was a step up, you know, in the whole business ology of, of everything, right? So ultimately I always had a huge attraction to property. So the way I got started was I became a bit disillusioned in the corporate side of things. So Obviously, everyone, you know, has their famous side hustle, you know, so I, I bought an infill lot. I, I built a, so from a, a land sub developer who put in the roads and, and the civils, and I got an architect and built a custom house. And I think the thing cost at the time, you know, 260 grand all up TDC and, and we sold it for 380, like five hours onto the market kind of thing. So it was a pretty good result. And so then I replicated that one more time. And this was in Australia? No, no, that was back in Canada. That was okay. back in Canada. Canada. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, and then after that, I thought, oh, I'm going to try something a little different. And I, I wanted something a shorter duration. So I, I, I got a renovation property that was a quick three month flip. We, it ended up at about four and a half, I think. So slightly over time, but absolute nightmare. I'll never do it again. Uh, I did it all by myself. I had a general contractor who was a buddy helping me and we did all the painting of the walls ourselves. And like, you know, I could have had a painter do the whole house in probably a day and a half. And it took us four weeks to paint the whole inside of the house because we just had no idea what we we're doing. Right. So, and I think it's important. Let's take a pause there. I think a lot of people who do renovations and, you know, start off, I, you know, I've done a few renovation projects of my own, actually more than a few. And I was having this discussion with a client of mine, you know, or, or actually not a client, you know, a friend of mine, actually, over the weekend, last weekend, where we were talking about renovation. And I told them that it's about the, the value that you put in for your time. A lot of renovators never allow for their time in the projects. And so while they might be making money. No. You know, they might be earning like $5 an hour because the amount of hours that they put in into some of these projects is, is magnanimous. It's like it's ginormous, right? So it's important to understand where that highest value is. You know, I use a typical example in some of these scenarios. You know, uh, I have a really good friend of mine who runs a mowing business. And so I have a small front yard 
the front yard and the backyard all has uh, fake grass and there is a small nature strip where there is grass. And so he will come out every month and mow that nature strip for me. And he would curse me every time he comes in because he can see that I have an electric mower that sits in the backyard, which is brand new, unpacked, and it sits there. And be like, you are a lazy freaking bum. You know, you can't just get up and just do the mow. And I was like, buddy, how much do you charge me an hour? And he's like, 40 to $50. And I was like, do you know how much I can make in an hour if I'm working on a development or if I'm working with a client? So I value my time to that extent. You know, I can, and this is not me boasting about it. This is not me ego testing about it. This is me realizing that there is a bigger mindset shift that needs to happen when you are going into a higher value business, right? Yeah, exactly. Why do you think our consultants in development charge $250 an hour? You know, I mean, yes, they're educated engineers or architects or things like that, but like we have just as much education, Moxon, in, in the whole project cycle, not just the one little, little, little bit of it. But you're 100% right. You know, like I, and I, I made a huge mistake there as well. I didn't value my time. I just said, well, it's only going to cost this much. And at the end of the day, it, it, it turned out to be a, an amazing success as far as financial numbers was concerned. But what a what a nightmare, right? Like, you know, you 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 go into the project and you think, oh, I've never done this before, but I'm going to put together a budget. And I didn't even know if it was right. So you're going back and forth here. We have Bunnings there. It's called Home Depot. And and it's like you get the materials for the job you're going to do that day. And then all of a sudden you rip out the vanity. It's like, oh, I got to replace the plumbing. Oh, I got to put a, a door in here. I got to do this or that. And all these cabinets we were going to paint look like, you know, crap. And I got to I got to rip out the whole kitchen now. And, and it's like so my advice to renovators is, look, it can be the, the, there's beautiful positives to it. If you can flip it out in three months, you're getting a huge return in a very short amount of time. But it's a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of hassle. And I just prefer knocking down and starting from, from scratch with, with bigger returns. I think but it's just that's easier just my preference. to work with a, with a clean slate, right? Rather than, you know, trying to build a, a painting of someone's scribbles, right? You know, that's how I see it. You know, you have someone scribbling on a painting. It's true. But then, you know, like I've just gone through the occupational certificate for a class two building because my current project's basically a two unit apartment building on the waterfront. So it's like whether it's 100 units or two units, whether it's 15 floors of 12 units per floor or two units with one per floor, it's the same legislation. It's the same checklist. It's it's like and at the end of the day, I'm, I was almost kind of going. Oh, you know, maybe the renovation wasn't so bad, but it was it, it seeing the design process and building something and watching it go up level by level, watching the beauty just unfold in front of your eyes day by day in the last days of construction is so gratifying. It's so um, exciting, you know. Definitely. And so, how does how does these challenges work? You know, talk to me a bit about that journey of. You know, you're doing the renovations to your current project where you, you're doing luxury builds. You know, how does, you know, how do you squish, how do you transition? Well, so I think the critical part to, to any business model, especially in property, is, is research and education. So I, what I did is I took a couple of years, you know, obviously going to some of the educators out there. I, you know, you sort of run that kind of form for investors to, to help them and guide them. 
there's there's plenty of really good ones and some not so good ones out there, but you can learn a lot of things. Now, the problem and the downfall with any of those is like there's always another level that you need to pay for to get more detail and more education and and you can end up in analysis paralysis, you know, 50k later, you know, and feeling really confident, which is good. Yeah. But the key t- to that point is and it's okay to spend that money moxin. I did it. It was and it was the best thing I ever did. My mentor was brilliant. Uh the teachings they gave, the information they passed on was was amazing, okay? But it's about what you do after. And and I've seen a lot of people who go spend a lot of money and then get intimidated and still don't have that confidence and don't end up doing anything and they've got this big debt of education. And it, it's kind of like going to university, you know, you end up with this huge uni debt, you know, but it's like you, you're you not heading out there to to pay it off and, and get something. So I was very motivated. And so after doing probably about 100 or 150 feasibilities, doing my research, building a team in my and, and looking at my target areas, you know, you get to know who are the builders in the area, who are the architects, who are the team and you can start scoping out deals a lot quicker because, you know, you bring your stormwater guy in if it's got flood overlay. You bring your architect in to, you know, look at yield. You bring in your structural guy to to talk about, well, landscaping and excavation and your builder. You know, you have a couple of builders on hand who are there to answer your questions because they want to bring you on as a client. And you can't do any of that without the right team. So... That's kind of what I did to get started and spent a few years really just making offers. And I, I think I brought, you know, six or seven sites to offer stage, got outbid a few times, vendors backed out a couple times, you know, like for whatever reason, the universe looked after me and it just wasn't a hundred percent. And then my current development uh, came to me uh, through a contact I had made through the, the network of the, my target area. And I was given the right amount of time. I was given the right details. And I, I, over those two years, I had been, you know, developing relationships with potential investors, posting in different forms like yours and, and about, there's about 15 or 20 of them. And you start attracting investors to come talk to you. How do we structure things? How do we do things? What are my returns? And suddenly you've got, you know, 30, 40 people sort of following you that you can sort of email out to whenever a deal sort of comes in. And the current, I have a a current group of seven investors on my project. And the way that sort of worked out is, and when we're looking to acquire new sites now, I do a preliminary feasibility. I send it out to them immediately, even though none of the numbers have maybe been vetted. I've done some controls planning. And I get them involved in the due diligence right up front. So they kind of jump in and start looking at sales and where's the area and helping me with the DD. And we sort of do it as a, a bit of a team. And that way, at the end of the, the line, when it comes time for investment decision, they're invested. They've already done their own independent research. They feel confident in the deal and the numbers I'm presenting. And we are all in agreement in lockstep. So making an investment decision happens a lot quicker than me just going out doing two weeks of work and then dumping a whole like like bucket load of information on them and asking them to make a decision. Is this a good deal? That's a very good process. I think I love it. Uh, you know, the, the process of inclusions and bringing everyone together. You know, if I take a step back and, you know, just 
uh, rephrase some of the the stuff that we have talked about in relation to education. We are not saying that education is bad, but that 95-5 or 90-10 rules apply, right? Any education that you do, there would be 90% of people who would do nothing about that education, right? And then there would be 10 people who would take it to that next level and really get their hands dirty and, you know, start implementing some of these things. And, you know, that's for every industry. It's not just property development. I think the best thing about education is that, you know, these 90% people have access to those 10% people who can be the leaders of bringing the deal together. And naturally, that's one of you, right? Where you And know, that's, what my, that's what my investors are basically, Moxin. So three of them are but like the budding developers or, or have done their own developments. And in some cases, one of them has been a money partner in four different deals and only wants to be a money partner. But he brings a lot of value because he can just say, well, and you know, I had this happen or this, and he's been through some things. So some great contributions, but he never wants to be the developer. He loves what he does for work. And, and I have another gentleman, like another gentleman who's done multiple developments of his own, but he's happy to put money with other people to do the work on these sort of bigger, higher end deals while he focuses more on sort of the mid-market type stuff. Definitely. And and it's it and it's an amazing team. And then I've got a I've got another woman who's done a few of her own developments as well. And she's just got such a keen eye for detail and picks out little things. Oh I Mike, is that a formula error? Oh yeah, thanks. You know? And when we come from corporate, we have those double checks in place, right? Because you've got this huge company of staff to and management to double check your work before you send out huge proposals and and things like that, right? Making sure costings are all correct and it's nice to be working within a team like that. And we all sort of work together. But I guess going back to what you said about, you know, jumping in to do it. Look, property development is very complicated. There's a lot of skill required, a lot of pro like like my 20 years of project management working for a Fortune 500 company, you know, managing a $50 million portfolio of clients and, and major oil and gas clients. It was in a different industry has really brought all those processes forward for me. So like, you know, like using something like Trello is more just an admin task just to prove that like I'm putting my thoughts out on paper. I don't need it to organize my day. Like it all just flows for me. Yes. I can just walk into the each day and go, here's the priorities. Let's get all this done. And 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 I don't need a piece of software to tell me when things are due or what my deadlines are, but I put it in there anyway. Definitely. Look, I mean, ultimately, you are in the business of making complexities, complexities easy for people, right? You know, that's where, you know, the more complex problem you solve, the more money you can make, right? I always say this, that development is a game of structures and finance. And those who can do this together with the project management hat on, you know, they will do wonders every time they'll do a project, you know, development. Well, that's the beauty of my business, Moxin, because it's all encompassing from start to finish. I find the site, I do the feasibility. Then I do all the legal side of things, you know, doing the acquisition, setting up the structures, doing the shareholder agreements, the PM agreements, doing the builder tenders, putting together the loan agreements. Like I, I take care of every aspect because in my previous role and again, working for a Fortune 500 company, I had access to some of the world's best lawyers working at the highest corporate level. So we're doing high, high level negotiations with contracts worth millions of dollars. So you get to understand the the idiosyncrasies of the legal jargon. Now, I'm no lawyer. Absolutely not. I'm not giving legal advice to anyone ever. But 
I can read a document and I can work with our legal team to make sure I'm, you know, asking the right questions to identify the right things and asking the right questions to get the right answers and the right outcomes for us. But the reason why people don't, that 90% don't do it is because they get out and try me and I'm sure most of them do, but it's really tough. And, and, and it, it takes a lot of work. That's a good segue in us talking about tough. Talk about the project, you know, that you're doing right now. You've mentioned that you got an OC, but let's talk a bit about, you know, how did it eventuate? What does that mean? You know, how did the seed turn into the plant? Yeah. So the way it all worked is, as I said to you before, we, I, I had a bit of a following of people and there's some, some, I guess, creating relationships with potential investors. So, and my process has been refined since, and it's gotten even better. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, once we get that out there, I put it out. And now I even include not just my seven investors, but I have another, say, 15 that I send out a group email to that have all signed a non-disclosure agreement so that, you know, all my IP and everything is confidential and, and it's there for them. And that's kind of how it gets started, right? And then, and the, the site sort of just dropped on my lap. A guy just called me and said, hey, you know, like, I, I want to sell this. And it's like, oh, okay, great. Can you give me a couple of weeks? Yeah, no problem. And, and we were able to, you know, give the, the, the vendor top dollar so that we could acquire a, a prestige waterfront site. And 14 Bulls Road is in Burnier is probably one of the most premier locations. We've got a northeastern aspect. So you get the sunrise every morning, the master bedroom set up right on the outside facing the water. The whole wall is glass. When you wake up in the morning, it's just spectacular. Not, not that I've slept there, but I was there at sunrise a few mornings, you know, recently for photo shoots and things. And it was just spectacular, right? And this and, a single house? Is this a single house? Well, from the outside, if you look at the renders and, and when, once we we're, we're, we're just finishing construction this week, so we'll be having some external and some drone footage taken shortly early next week, but uh, which you'll see on socials. So stay tuned for that, everyone. But uh, it looks like a single house from the outside. It looks like a 360, 370 square meter, beautiful luxury home from the outside. But what it is, is it's a two unit apartment building. Oh, wow. So as you come down the steps, there's an auto sliding glass door with, you know, fob entry at the front, just like an apartment complex. The door slides open. The ground floor residence door is right there. And then to your right is the, the lift that goes up to the penthouse and, and, and then a, a fire stairway that's a private stairway if they want to just take the stairs. The key entries are all fob or fingerprint or, or code. So the whole, the whole place is I'm trying to build or I've, I've built the home of the future, right? Like we're going to, we're getting rid of keys. Obviously the locks still have manual keys if people want to use them, but everything's automated. So you'll be able to, to, you know, someone could be in Europe and ask someone to, to go and clean their house or water their plants and program a code in the app on their phone. And they can, in, within minutes, that person can show up, put that code in, and then that code will be erased within a few, a few hours of them being there. And then their home is locked up again. So, but everything's automated. So you walk into the ground floor and it's really just spectacular as you walk through the front door because all you see is the view. And as soon as you get off the lift in the penthouse, you turn the corner and it's just 
a whole wall of glass and water everywhere. It's got its own jetty. Um, so the owners do units? have a, a, a crown lat. Sorry. For both units, the jetty for both units. Yeah, it's so out the back. There's a 300 square meter patch of, of land out the back. A really nice, uh, we beautified it. It's crown land. We re-landscaped the whole thing, planted some nice palm trees back there. There's a jetty for you to launch, you know, boats or jet skis or, you know, sup boards or windsurfers, whatever. But so they have, they have shared on that. Now it's a strata plan. Um, it's a strata subdivision. So there, we, we've also had to create a, a strata owners corporation and there's legal requirements for developers to make sure that everything is in place. There's a, a, a truckload of documents that needs to be handed over to the strata uh, corporation for capital works programs, maintenance schedules to, to strike levies. So the whole process is pretty like it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, when you do a strata subdivision, it's not just building two units and everyone thinks, Oh, it's just a duplex. No, it's, it's a, the, the the gross revenue on this is going to be you know a, around hopefully between sixteen point five and seventeen million dollars. So um, each unit is is selling for circa eight eight and a half million or more. And but but the, the beautiful part about this development, Moxon, is the the homes on either side that are that three hundred and sixty square meter house is like they're selling for twelve to thirteen million each. So. Someone who wants to be in this prime location is getting a huge value having a single level with their own lift that's a, a, a residence that's got all the luxurious fit out and, and, and finishes and fixtures that you could ever want. It's a retirement, get old, like you can grow old in this home because it's got a lift that goes down to your garage, down to the lobby. You have full access everywhere in, in, in the site. So you won't need to go to a retirement home later on. There's in the penthouse, we have two separate wings of the house. So if the if the owner is, say, just an, an, uh, a downsizing couple in their 50s or 60s, they can grow old in that house. And a, a nurse could probably come later and live in the in the west wing of, of the penthouse and have their own bathroom and set up. And the couple can live in their master bedroom and and they can get up and down on their lift to their car. And the beauty of the class two building is that it also takes into consideration future requirements. So all the lifts are designed in, in full DDA compliance, which is all the handicap regulations for wheelchairs in and out. We have access solutions at the front gate. We've thought of every eventuality and possibility. And that's legislated, though, you know, it, in order to do a class two building, every Every building has to have that. Let's talk numbers. Look, every time, you know, someone talks numbers, you know, it gets me excited. So let's talk numbers. What is the acquisition looking like? You know, how much did you acquire? Did the plans came with this? You know, did you tweak the plans to make them better? You know, take us through, you know, the journey together with the numbers. So the acquisition numbers are, are actually in a confidential, confidential agreement. So I can't release the actual acquisition numbers, but... I can talk to you about TDC and I can talk to you about, you know, GRV. So gross realized value and total development costs, total profit returns, profit on cost percentages, those sort of generalities. So we're looking at about a, a gross revenue of some between 16 and a half to 17 million for two units. The TDC will be somewhere around the, you know, just under 17 million mark. So 
we're we're going to be making you know between two and a half to three million dollars in profit. Total profit on cost is approximately eighteen to twenty percent, somewhere in there. And returns for investors are you know between forty-seven to fifty-one percent, just depending on the final numbers and the 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 penthouse figure. So if I can get if I can get the price I want, it'll be around fifty-one. If we get our the 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 lowest price we'll accept, it'll be about forty-seven. You know, but still an amazing result. You know, at, at it, we're only a few percent off. Basically, the investors not doubling their money, but like whatever they put in, they're getting a fifty percent on that. So if someone put in a million dollars, they're making five hundred, and they're taking and increasing their their total return very fast. And it's a very it's a it's a chunk money growth strategy in your wealth development, right? So instead of buying an investment property. And, and waiting seven to 10 years to for it to double, you can do the same thing with your money in, say, a year and a half, two years. Definitely. And, and there's, there's, no, there's no right or wrong there, Moxon. Like my, my fiance is a finance manager and, and a mortgage broker. And I said, oh, development's way better. And, and she, she tore me to shreds, man. Not like in a beautiful way, because she's a, the, the most caring and lovely, soft woman ever. But she just said, really, let's write it down. And we went through all the numbers. And at the end of the day, you, it, it's about the same success. It just, it's just about how much time you want to deploy that money for, right? And I, I kind of had to take my foot out of my mouth and go, okay, I, I understand. But you know, I still had to say, well, but it's an opportunity loss. Yes, it's, it's an important consideration, right? When you think about developments, a lot of people don't take into account time value money, right? So how much time are you investing into a particular development? What sort of risks are you taking? And uh, how involved are you? You know, if you're spending like, you know, as I said, you know, if you're doing like 20 hour days to make that sort of returns every day, then you'd be like, oh, that's crazy. There's no work-life balance, right? And if you're taking way too much risk, if you have everything on the line, if you have your life on the line to that 50% return, you'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense. But what you are promising or what you are saying is, this is a much more risk mitigated strategy where, you know, nothing is guaranteed in the, in the world, of course, but, you know, you're doing it in such a manner that this is replicable and you can do it at scale. You can do it in such a manner that, you know, you can almost predict what these numbers look like in a worst than a best case scenario. One question I do have, though, is how much of these houses cost like, you know, when you're talking about such high end builds, you're talking about granite and marble beach tops and, you know, crazy sort of stone finishes. You know, what are we talking about in relation to the house, like the build prices? Look, that can vary quite a bit. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm probably comfortable in, in, in sharing our, our total build cost. But what at, at this stage, what I would say is like build costs have gone up 30 to 40 percent. It, it's become a critical component. So the three critical areas are your 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 as Robert Kiyosaki always teaches, right? You, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So buying good, buying at a, at a good value, getting your site at a good price, don't overpay for it. Your build cost, your finance cost, and your, and your gross va realized value. So, you know, the build costs can be varied because, for example, Loxon, like I could go and select the finest oak floors and the best stone bench tops, but like, then I've overcapitalized and 
I've sunk all my money into there, but I'm going to max out on on what the market will bear on sales, and I'm not going to get return for for luxury, right? So, so it's it's a fine line you have to skirt. So, I mean, in this case, we've definitely put in as as all the mod cons, everything you could possibly ask for, heated floors, full automation system, so you can wake up and grab your phone and open your blinds, turn on the lights in the in the kitchen. You can even set up your coffee cup in the coffee maker we've put in in there, Gaginal appliances, right? At the the night before and press a button on on the app and it will make your coffee before you even come out to the kitchen. The fridge is Gaginal, it 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 has a sensor to make its own ice and we have a a, a beautiful an amazing state of the art security system that is is there to monitor the property constantly. It's all there on a touch screen or on your phone. There's a, a because it's a class two building. It's got a fire system that's far and above just some smoke detector in a normal house, right? It's basically like a, a, a hundred unit apartment building sort of fire system. So it alerts the fire brigade if there's a, 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 any sort of fire on a thermal sensor basis. There are smoke detectors to just detect smoke versus actual fire. So. Each one has its own uh, European-made lift to each residence, so the lifts are private. So, but the penthouse, you know, we're we're working through the security issues at the moment and the electrical communications to make sure that when you're sitting on your couch and your doorbell rings, you can press the button and send the lift down, and your guest can get in without needing the security fob to go back up. Right. So nice. All these little in- intricacies of, of building homes and making sure that you're asking the right questions of your suppliers and ordering the right gear. Because at the end of the day, if you if you don't understand what you want it to do, you can't tell your suppliers the right thing. So, but these are the kind of things that, that you can expect in a really high end sort of luxury build. Definitely, and it's important. But we're talking that- millions, Martin. Yes, and it's it's important that you know you are understanding the product market fit quite importantly, right? You're understanding your ultimately, you know, what I call it is your use case, your user experience is very very important because when you are talking about owner occupier market, you are basically selling the dream. You are basically selling an emotional real estate. This is not so much about who can crook or you know like copy paste, you know, brick and mortar investment properties we are talking about a person walking into the house and you know getting that wow factor coming through as to okay there are these little things that people have considered when they're building you know some of these things and and that comes through the price right you know every time you add that you know additional thing you know you get you know 10x returns 20x returns on a lot of these little things and you get a lot of people excited especially people who are going to you know live there see this as their you know, place to live or place to retire or that, you know, safe heaven, you know, across the beach or from the beach. So yes, I can totally understand and relate to a lot of these bills and vessels and how you are, you know, honoring right into that emotional intelligence of people to get that right price point that you are aiming for. Now, how does the funding works? Like, talk to us a bit about, you know, some of the funding models that, you know, you worked, you know, is it cash? Is it debt? You know, how... Would you have, did you have any problems in relation to establishing the GRVs? Because of course, you know, when you're building a house of this size, there are really no comparables, right? Because, you know, you are basically, you know, building something and you are s- setting a stone or establishing your own GRV. And so let's start off with, you know, the funding side of things, you know, cash, debt, how do you fund these 
in the first instance? What sort of uh, serviceability requirements do you have? What sort of cash requirements do you have in relation to, you know, you kicking off this project and starting off? And again, you know, how, what sort of settlement terms did you went with? Yeah. So look, you're, you're, it's funny. You, 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 you like, you don't even, you, you, you probably weren't, you weren't involved in the very initial stage, but you're right. We did sort of struggle setting the GRVs or the gross realized values for this because the luxury market is very undersupplied at the moment. There's a, a lot, a lot of people in the lower North Shore, in the eastern suburbs, the Mo- in Mossman, in the northern beaches, in the Sutherland Shire, in the beaches area that have these 15 plus million dollar homes that are getting old, that need renovation. Their kids have moved out. They want to downsize. They need something that's luxury, still on the waterfront that is new. And there's a very, very large undersupply, but there's and 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 there's a, a shortage of it. So there's actually a shortage of 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 comparable sales. So we had to use some unit sales of like say penthouses, like beachfront, oceanfront, you know, water adjacent in in Cronulla in the initial stages because there wasn't anything like this. This project is a one of a kind, probably one in ten year event to have a a, a site of this nature come up on the waterfront where you can do a dual occupancy like this. There is another one over in Cronulla, but it's the first and only of its kind in Baranir. I personally, you know, I believe ours to be a a superior location, but uh, uh, as far as this dual occupancy, top and bottom apartment style living is concerned, but very, very little of this in that space. So that GRV was very difficult. And, And when we're talking about that, I guess, the listeners really need to understand the importance of setting those GRVs in relation to LVR capacities with lenders. They also need to understand that you need to be able to prove the as complete, you know, built products will be supported by valuation because that's what the va- banks are going to use. You can't just set whatever number you want if you overvalue it in your in your feasibility and then you'll you get that return it just means you and your investors have to put in more cash that means your return on equity could come down because you've had to dump in more cash so the finance piece is is probably to me in the in the education space out in the australian education is the most under mentioned undervalued component of a development because it can make or break you and and there's actually some interesting things that I'll, I'll get to in a, in a moment around switching focus within the finance structuring to save costs because of escalating build costs so we can continue to make feasibility stack up. So remind me to come circle back to that in a moment. But the GRVs we established, we, we got support early on. So what we did is we paid for evaluation very early on in the piece. Personally, even though we're gonna, we were going to probably have to pay for it again, and we did an as-is and an as-complete valuation to just make sure, because when you're dealing with these kind of numbers, spending $3,000 to make sure that your vision is, is correct is, is really a small piece to... And, and of course, with the investors, we all agreed, okay, let's just get that, pay that money, and we'll each tip in 500 bucks or whatever, right? And so we did it and it all stacked up. And so now we've got a a valuer who says, okay, it's worth that. Now, obviously that valuer, we also did our research mocks in and we went to the, we we were already doing preliminary lender reviews and we'd already sort of shortlisted down to one or two. And I just said to them, who's your preferred 
QS and who's your preferred uh, valuer. So we used them so that when I got that valuation and paid for it of my own money, I knew that he would use it and he would support it, even though he's going to reorder it later. And I'm probably going to have to pay for it again at a later stage. He said to me, Mike, as long as it's done within three months of the time that we sign a loan agreement, I'll use it and you use my guy. So I used his guy, I paid for it, and it all stacked up and it was it was great. Now, again, one of those tips for investors is, you know, generate your own report, do as much research as you can, show up to site with the valuer and hand them what you've, you know, what, what you've done. They might look at it, they might not. But it shows them that you're, you're, you know, you 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 value their job and their inputs, and they may have some sales that you didn't realize because they're really the professionals to identify what is comparable and what's not, right? And you, you're not, we're not professional valuers, Moxon. So the other important critical piece was QS, right? So going to the QS in the feasibility stage, having it double checked and saying. Hey, but again, all these professionals cost money moxin. So if you want a little tip for your investors, if they're doing these kind of things in the beginning stages, like I said, I spent two years and during that time I took meetings, I bought coffees, sometimes lunch, I invested time in them. I wanted to understand their business model, what their services were, how we could work together. And I spent time with them and, and, and then in turn, they give me small bits of their time just going. Mike, you're looking at about this per square meter and they're really the professionals and they have the data to support it. Even if it's just a quick 15, 20 minute review of an email and going, use a per square meter rate of this in that area, consider these other costs and wow, okay, great. Now I can show investors that we've got QS support for build costs. We've got valuations to support our GRVs and we and now we can... We can use professionals to come up with those numbers rather than just trying to pull them out of the air. And obviously, you still go to the builders and you say, okay, can you give me some costs? And then you should. And in our case, our the project that when we acquired it was already DA approved. So I already had concept plans to send out so they could price them. So that was a lot easier. Now, when you're when you're dealing with a raw site, it's a lot harder. But what I like to do, Moxon, is I I'll, I'll Get my architect, maybe pay him five hundred bucks, a thousand dollars to to do some hand sketches. Sometimes, and if you and if you've invested in that relationship and you've worked with that architect before, or you've done something with them, they may not even charge you for hand sketches. And then you can send those out to builders and say, "This is what my architect and I are envisioning." Right? Yeah. But getting back to the funding model, so now you've got a basis for the funding that you require that will be supported by lenders. So you've done your research, you've done your due diligence. Now you're not just saying, well, can I have this much? And and well, and and the famous line from any lender is, yes, we'd love to do the deal subject to QS and valuation. And that's where a lot of people fall over because they don't realize that that if they don't go and check that themselves, that their deal could fall over or they're going to end up putting in a lot more capital or it's not worth what they thought it was or they're not going to get the support. So it's a mechanism in my process on the front end for my investors so that I can prove to them that we're in the right ballpark, that everything is stacking up before we even, so that we're taking out, just like everyone talks about planning risk, right? Oh, can we get this approved? Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at yield. Let's look at controls, but let's look at, are we going to get a loan? Because if I can't get the funds 
we we got nothing. Doesn't matter if I can build it. Thank you, viewers and listeners, for diving in deeper with my day's episode of how to become a developer with no money of your own. Now, this is a two-part episode, so part two will be coming in very shortly next week. Uh, just to give you a bit of bit of a brief recap about or review or a teaser about what's going to expect in part two, we are going to talk about loans and the studies of the feasibilities. We are going to talk about the finance structures and how to navigate through some of the finance deals. And that's one of my favorite topics. We're also going to talk about how does the private equity side of things works, what are the serviceability models, and much more. So stay tuned and do come back in for the episode two with Mike Day from Apex Development on how to become a developer with no money of your own. Thank you for listening to me. Keep smiling, stay safe, stay happy, keep investing. This is Moss checking out. Adios.